0: It is Monday, August 22nd, 2022. I'm Guy Benson, and this is The Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for joining us for this brand-new broadcast week. Every day, 3 to 6 p.m. weekdays right here. And there's a podcast that's totally free every day should you miss a moment. It's on demand. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Lots of content there. You can also check us out at FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts, if that's the way that you choose to listen. Follow us on social media, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. You can also follow me personally if you're interested, at Guy P. Benson. So, at Guy Benson Show is the show handle. Guy P. Benson is my personal handle, Twitter and Instagram in each case. And I'm here in London, England, broadcasting live from the U.K., today and tomorrow also from the Fox News Bureau here in London. And I'm very, very excited and pleased to be here, grateful for the hospitality. And I will be sprinkling in some color commentary about my visit over the course of the program, not just today, but also tomorrow as well. Here's the lineup that we've got for you, starting with Joe Concha, our Fox News colleague later on this hour. I'm sure Joe, who's a media critic and writes his column often on media matters or about the media at the hill i would guess if i had to wager that he has quite a few thoughts on the shakeup and changes over at cnn we will ask him about that and more coming up in around half an hour from right now in the next hour dr marty McCarry at johns hopkins he is going to react to the news today that dr anthony fauci will be stepping down from his role in december McCarry has been a real critic of fauci's So I'm looking forward to getting his assessment. Plus, the head of the CDC says that they need to kind of like unplug the CDC and reboot it, plug it back into the wall, because the American people in so many ways have lost faith in the public health establishment. I think that that's absolutely true. But is Rochelle Walensky or any of the powers that be, are they in a position to restore that trust? What would that look like? What would that take? We'll ask Dr. McCary about that. Josh Krasauer will also be here in our middle hour, giving his take and his analysis on the state of the race. Broadly speaking, in 2022, he's got sort of the midterms pulse, and we will check in with him. And in our final hour, Carol Markowitz, columnist at The New York Post. She's going to be here on a couple different topics. Maybe we'll touch on Fauci with her. I've got a lot that I want to ask her about involving Florida politics and some of the controversies there. And as usual, I would imagine we will have a wide ranging discussion with Carol. As we begin the show today, I would like to highlight some new polling numbers and an interesting little development in a report from The Washington Post. So the poll comes from NBC News. The nugget that I think is quite revealing comes from The Post. So. Two mainstream media outlets providing some interesting fodder, I would say, today as we get going here. And I'm not going to do another big monologue about the so-called Inflation Reduction Act that the Democrats passed and President Biden signed into law. I have made my feelings on that crystal clear over and over again. We've gotten into substantive analysis. It's not just like, oh, the Democrats are doing it, so I don't like it. I think on substance, it is a terrible law. And certainly not one that, as they love to say, meets the moment, even though they were trying to pretend that it does by calling it an inflation reducer, even though the experts say that is highly unlikely. And in a lot of ways, as I've detailed here, the Democrats are almost like running away from that talking point and moving on to the next thing. However, what I do want to talk about, rather than getting into all of the specifics again, is how it's playing with the American people. Because we told you, I believe it was a YouGov poll recently, where only about 12% of Americans were willing to claim to a pollster that they believed that the Inflation Reduction Act, the Democrats' misnomer, would actually reduce inflation. They weren't fooling almost anyone. What about the law more broadly? What do the American people, what does the U.S. electorate think of the Inflation Reduction Act? So NBC asked this question. And this is after all the rebranding and it's this historic investment in climate change and so on and so forth. And president has been out there and the media has been pounding away, you know, the positive drums and not not the normal media pounding. This is like, you know, kind of a fluffing up the bill and trying to promote it. Right. It's been very much a cheerleader type of moment. So after all of that, the question from NBC was, will The Inflation Reduction Act, dot, 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 and there are three options for voters. The first option is not make a difference. This is about their personal life. Not make a difference, make things worse for me, or make things better for me. Those are the three options. And here are the results from NBC News. Just 26%, roughly one in four Americans, believe that the Inflation Reduction Act will make life better for them. 26%. That's basically the Democratic base and not a single person more. That is a dreadful number for what was supposed to be like this big, huge victory, so important for the Democrats, right? All these very smart political analysts and commentators showed up on the news or in columns and saying, wow, what a win for Biden. Uh, this is He's really turning things around. Right, we, we, talk, we sort of ridiculed this. I think it's classic, inward, insular, beltway spin. And it also kind of felt, at least to, to me and to my ear, like a lot of people trying to convince themselves that right? there's just been all this bad news, a drumbeat of bad news for Biden and his administration and his party for like a year and a half. So here was something that, of course, generally – liberals and journalists who were liberals, all liked. Here's a lot of spending. It's a climate change thing. Yeah, there's a misleading, uh, misleading label they put on it, but whatever. And so they wanted to believe that this is the type of thing that could be a game changer for the Democrats or for this president. You know, Biden's back, baby, all of that stuff. Well, 26% of the American people say that this huge spending bill will improve their life. 35% say that it will make things worse. So by a nine-point nine margin, there are more Americans who think that this bill, this now law, will make things worse for them than better. 26% better, 35% worse. And then another 36%, a slim plurality, that says it will make no difference. So when you add up no difference To It will make my life worse. That is 71% of the American people are not buying what the Democrats are selling on this thing. Unfortunately, we all have to pay for it. I know they say it's just the billionaires and the super rich, but uh, we've addressed that at some length on this show. It will not just be billionaires and the rich and greedy corporations, whether it's the tax increase that Hits companies and, and other different tax mechanisms in the bill that the Joint Committee on Taxation says will impact every income group or whether it's the massively increased enforcement of tax law at the IRS. This is going to hit a ton of people who are not at the upper echelon of society, not even close. So the Democrats have been spinning their tail, spinning their yarn. And at least as an initial big indicator in the NBC News poll, uh, a lot of Americans simply are not having it. Now, let's talk a bit more about this survey. It's the first NBC poll since May. So Biden's job performance, his approval in this poll, it's 42 percent approve, 55 percent disapprove. And 42 actually sounds for Biden not terrible. Because often he's at like 38, 39, 40, 42. It's like, oh, maybe he's gotten a little bit of a bump. Although his disapproval is still at 55%. Well, if you look back at the previous NBC poll in May, the number was 42% approve, 54% disapprove. Virtually identical, just statistical noise. His approval number is exactly the same, totally unchanged, May versus now. After all the things that we were told would help him, including this bill passing and him signing it and his agenda back on track, as they would tell us, at least. And Democrats all fired up over Roe versus Wade and abortion. Well, here we are, May to August, and the result is exactly the same. With the president 13 points underwater on approval, he was actually 12 points underwater in May. So he's degraded a percentage point. That is not a bounce for Joe Biden. Back in May, the question that was asked on the generic ballot, which party would you like to control Congress? We've talked about this metric a number of different times. In May, back in the spring, it was an exact tie, 46 to 46 percent. And just to give my routine public service announcement, a tied congressional ballot almost always means good news for Republicans. But, of course, they'd rather be ahead. That would lead to a bigger wave. And so here we are in August, the new NBC poll. May was 46 to 46. Now it's 47, 45 Republicans ahead by two points. So, you know, a net two point gain for the GOP. That's not anything to write home about. But I'll tell you this. If the outcome in November is Republicans by two in the national vote, that will be a very good night for Team Red. And then. Interest in the midterms is still sky high among Republicans, virtually unchanged since May, 68 percent. Democrats, that number's come up a little bit now to 66 percent from 61. So uh, it's fair to say that their base is more engaged and intense than they have been. But overall, these numbers, I think, are pretty good for the opposition party. This is also interesting from uh, from NBC News in the survey. They asked about the image of both parties in the minds of the public, and it's just a race to the bottom. It's dreadful. Democrats are slightly worse. So Republicans have a glittering 34 percent positive rating, 49 percent negative. So that's, you know, underwater by 15 points. Democrats worse, 34 percent positive, 51 percent negative. And Biden's underwater. Trump is deep underwater, Pence is deep underwater, and deepest underwater is Vice President Kamala Harris. She has a 50% negative rating and just a 32% positive, and she doesn't really get that much attention or play. And I guess what voters have seen is more than enough for them. They're like, you know what? No. A few more nuggets from this poll that I think go to this whole media claim. Like, again, if you've just been watching mainstream news outlets for the last two weeks, you were force fed a story, a narrative that Biden's on a big winning streak and he's turning this thing around. And it's like all these big victories. He's back. Dark Brandon is shooting lasers out of his aviator sunglasses and owning the cons. And isn't this all exciting? And wow, what a turnaround. Well, NBC asked the American people. Is the country headed in the right direction or the wrong direction? Seventy four percent say wrong direction. The fifth consecutive survey showing the wrong direction number in the 70s. Seventy four percent, three quarters of the country dissatisfied with the direction of America. Now, you remember also the big, stupid debate that we had about whether we're in a recession after there were two consecutive Quarters of negative growth and the White House was insisting that that long held definition no longer applied for these technical reasons and don't pay attention to that. No, no, there's not a recession here. Well, we all had that debate. I think it was a very annoying one (laughs) in a lot of ways. But the American people have come to their own conclusions on this. NBC asked them, are we in a recession? The White House and the media did their very best with their spin. And this is how it worked out. 68 percent of the public says, yes, we are currently in a recession. Nearly 7 out of 10. So that is another just brutal faceplant for the White House PR machine. They've got a lot of elite backing. They've got a lot of people rooting for them in the journalism industry, but voters in general are just sitting back, arms crossed, saying, "Eh, nah. Now, the true proof of Biden's standing comes not from the media chorus, not from the White House press shop, not even necessarily from polls, which can sometimes be misleading. It comes from what Democrats are actually doing, their actual behavior and posture toward the president of their own party. And that brings us to the Washington Post story that I teased at the top of the segment. It's very interesting. I think it makes the point for me and totally again cuts against what we've been informed of by our media betters for the last couple of weeks we'll get to those details as soon as we come back just getting started live from london on the guy benson show stay tuned
3: guy benson will be right back
4: Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.
0: I'm Guy Benson. We're back. So yesterday on CNN, Jake Tapper asked Senator Mark Kelly of Arizona, an incumbent, who at least should be vulnerable this cycle, would he welcome President Biden to Arizona to campaign with him? And Mark Kelly was like, oh, well, uh, you, gosh, I, I'd welcome anybody to come to Arizona. And uh, if I'm not in D.C., I'd love to show people around. Uh, it was not exactly a ringing endorsement of the idea. And you'd think that Senator Kelly would be more hospitable toward Biden, considering how he carries his water so often. He's a rubber stamp for the guy in the Senate. Why not? You know, bear hug the guy when he comes to your state. You know, he's a do-anything-Biden-asks-Democrat. That's Mark Kelly. But I guess he recognizes, based on his own internal numbers, that Joe Biden would not be an asset for him in Arizona. And Kelly is not alone. So the Washington Post did an assessment of Joe Biden's standing. And the way that they came at it was not through polling and not through any spin. They went to 60 campaigns of Democrats running for governor, Senate and Congress all across the country. So dozens of campaigns, 60 total. And they asked, would you like Joe Biden to come and help you? And these are all in battleground states and battleground districts and quote candidates in these key races are either not asking him to come or are actively avoiding him when he does, according to this Washington Post survey. Few candidates said they wanted Biden to campaign for them in their state or their district, with many not even responding to the question at all. (laughs) It's like, ooh, we've got a press inquiry about Joe Biden. Let's just not answer that email. I like this line from The Post story. The Washington Post also asked if candidates wanted Vice President Harris as a surrogate campaigner from the Biden administration. And got the same set of unenthusiastic responses. (laughs) Michael Bennett, senator from Colorado, a Democrat, uh, his campaign came back and said, we have no comment from the campaign at this time. I almost feel like that's trolling. Like You call up a campaign like, hi, do you want Biden to come campaign for you? And they're like, no, no comment. No, thanks. And they're like, follow up. What about Kamala? (laughs) And they're like, come on, are you bleeping me? similarly unenthusiastic that's probably putting a happy face on it honestly all right we'll break we'll come back Joe Concha is here on the media and CNN that's next We're back on The Guy Benson Show from London. We are live. The sun is now down over here, but it's still afternoon back home, and I'm just happy that you are here wherever you happen to be listening around the world. We actually do have some listeners here in the U.K. and in Europe. We hear from them particularly on the podcast side of things. GuyBensonShow.com for that free podcast every day or FoxNewsPodcast.com. Wherever you get your podcasts, you know the drill. Well, a couple hours ago, I was doing some show prep and some writing at the hotel, and the news broke that Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's preeminent uh, infectious disease expert, or at least one of them, and he would certainly give that title to himself, is planning to step down this coming December after more than half a century in public service. And he's obviously a very divisive character. I think that he has played into some of that division around him. I think he became a political figure in a lot of ways, more so than was helpful to him, I would argue, and certainly to – the credibility of the public health establishment. And we will be talking a lot about that with Dr. Marty McCarry coming up in our next hour. But joining us now on this topic and a few others is Joe Concha, Fox News contributor, media critic, and columnist at The Hill. Joe, great to talk to you.
4: it's a pleasure, Guy. How you doing?
0: I'm doing well. I want to just quickly get your take on the Fauci news. I know that he's sort of an object of hate for a lot of people on the right. He is the opposite for many journalists, where Fauci hagiography was almost a, a huge staple in coverage of him, it, it was very rarely critical, very rarely, you know, tough questions where he was asked by a lot of journalists to sort of justify some of the pronouncements he was making. They just turned him into almost like this demigod. And I would imagine the farewell tour through the media for this guy is going to be. Probably the stuff of cringe for a lot of people who may not share that view of the doctor.
4: It'll be like, uh, if you're old enough to remember, the Michael Jordan retirement, right? Every time he played his final game in a city guy, he got like the rocking chair or it was just a big, big celebration by teams that he defeated and, and, and hated the Bulls. Uh, You're going to see that with Fauci as well. And the disconnect, you you encapsulated that perfectly. The way journalists look at him and then the way that those in the public, particularly in the center on the right, look at him are two very different things. So if you just separate all the noise, what was Dr. Fauci's track record? Was it exceptional during this unprecedented pandemic? Or was his messaging uh, something we would say not exemplary? And I'm going with B on this one because he was all over the map. And to your point, if you remember March of 2020, I mean, this is somebody that everybody, conservatives and, and, and liberals alike and everybody else in between, really embraced. He it was, he and Andrew Cuomo were the two most popular figures in this country. And boy, have things changed, right, with Cuomo out of office and now Fauci leaving and, and conservatives celebrating. But in the end, if we just go back and look at the scorecard and look at all the recommendations that he made and, and how political that he got at times as well, uh, I, I think that we're, we're going to look back at Dr. Fauci and, and it won't be – Fondly, we'll put it that way.
0: But I think the send-off, as you say, that he's going to get will be largely bereft of some of the counterpoints that you've offered. I'll offer another one. I think one of the things that bothers me and has bothered me the most about Fauci, uh, setting aside the arrogance factor, it is the, the admission on a few different occasions to the noble lie. He basically conceded a couple different times that he was telling the American public one thing while believing something else, but he did it because he thought ultimately it was for the greater good and we had to be manipulated. And if he had really leveled with us and told us the truth, then we would have been bad and done naughty things in his mind that would have hurt things overall. And so he would strategically – on a few occasions, lie to the public in order to try to achieve some sort of outcome. And I think doing that, look, you can you can argue about the morals or the ethics of that. Right. Like, oh, don't wear masks. They don't work. Whereas it was like, oh, well, we, we just actually don't want there to be a run on masks. And so then hospital workers can't have them. So we'll just tell the rest of the public, you know, don't wear masks. And of course, they change their tune on that very quickly. Uh, you, know, you can you can debate in a moment of crisis is there ever an excuse or a justification for doing something like that i think when you do it not just once but on a few different occasions and you admit to it almost like in this self congratulatory way of you know what a genius you are i i can't think of something that would really harm public faith in anything that's being you know put out there for public consumption uh, more than that because it's an admission that it was dishonesty Dishonesty that was promulgated and disseminated intentionally by someone in his position. I think that has to be part of the legacy.
4: Absolutely. It reminds me of the, the Harry Reid moment. And what I mean by that is that Harry Reid openly lied on the Senate floor that Mitt Romney uh, wasn't paying taxes or hadn't paid taxes from X right. year to X year. Yeah, and then the word when on the street.
0: On remember it, that? The word on the street is that Romney's a tax cheat is what he said.
4: Yep. And then the New York Times and Washington Post and CNN, everybody runs with this. Like, wow, is that true? Let's investigate because Harry Reid said so. And then when he was confronted on it a couple of years later, he said, well, he lost, didn't he? And just fully like had a smirk in his face. In other words, means to an end. Uh, with, with me, with Fauci, the, the, the turning point was actually uh, the first baseball game after the pandemic uh, had subsided a bit in, in July of 2020. And no one was allowed in the stadium, but Fauci went throughout the first pitch. And then there's there's photos of him. With the mask off, right? And instead of him saying, I have to do better. You're right. I have been advocating uh, for these strongly. And now here I am sitting right next to two other people that, you know, looks like they're over 60 or 70 years old and could be at risk, uh, at least at the time. That's what we were told outdoors. Uh, well, suddenly he's, he's without it. And he was just so, to your point, that's the word, arrogant. About he's like, oh, I just took it off for a second to take a drink, and that set the tone for every Democrat from Mariel Bowser uh, to Lori Lightfoot to Nancy Pelosi, all breaking their own rules. Gavin Newsom, like, yeah, what are you going to do about it, (laughs) right?
0: Yeah, I mean that that was it, Um, and I think that's a very good point to make, Joe Concha. I want to shift to something that we just mentioned, sort of in passing last week. I asked Molly Hemingway about it, but. This is something that you focus on, you cover, you think a lot about. I know you've been uh, scooping up and inhaling a lot of the coverage of surrounding what's happening at CNN. And yesterday was the final show for Brian Stelter and uh, Reliable Sources is what they call that show. A very long-running show that is now gone. Uh, it's, It's off the air. It was the last show. Stelter's out. And... I would love to get your thoughts on sort of his his final episode. I know there was a lot of self-righteous, self-serving stuff that he said in his, you know, final opportunity to talk to that audience. Before we get to that though, just taking the step back to this move to have Stelter removed from the network Taken off the air. I saw one report that he was making a a huge amount of money and had met like three plus years left on his contract. So he's probably going to leave that place with a very uh, you know golden parachute. He's going to have a lot of money to no longer do his job. They made a decision to sever that relationship. What do you think of that call right on the heels of Jeffrey Tubin parting ways with CNN? Is perhaps a new leaf being turned over at that network?
4: Well, I would say guy, always judge somebody by their actions. And at first, Chris Licht, who's the new CNN president, wasn't doing very much. And if you watch CNN, the coverage of basically everything was what we saw under Jeff Zucker. I'm like, well, you know, maybe the guy who came from Stephen Colbert being licked and the guy who came from Morning Joe, MSNBC, uh, maybe he's just, you know, all talk and no action. Uh, but, but to take uh, this action with Stelter, uh, that, that was pretty interesting because, look, Stel- people say, well, it was because of his ratings. So ratings are down across the board at CNN. So I'm not sure that was it. Uh, But in the end, they had to get rid of Brian Stelter. And I I can't believe the coverage that I'm seeing as far as this firing, right, as if he's a victim. No, he sealed his own fake guy, all right? He is the one that publicly – and, boy, this was genius, uh, and I mean that in the most sarcastic way possible. He's the one who attacked one of the most powerful people coming into his orbit, in John Malone, right? He's the largest shareholder of Discovery. Discovery now owns CNN saying that he's a misinformed idiot and doesn't know what he's talking about. And all Malone said was, hey, we should really get back to CNN's roots, which is journalism, and do less opinion. And Stelter really took that offensively because that was a criticism of Zucker, who obviously he was close to So when you start criticizing the boss, and then I, I know this for a fact, he he's, he also went to reporters at different friendly outlets to further try to create discord within cnn saying that the new management doesn't know what they're doing what they're talking about uh and anytime you saw a story with a cnn insider says well you don't guess who was behind that right so when you have somebody who's trying to destroy your your network from the inside he's got to go and that's why they fired him uh in this guy in this way and and with all that well, money left on the contract but how guy let me just finish one quick point sure how do they allow him back on the air after they they fire him because then on the show yesterday, they go right back after Malone again. When you're fired, you're done. You don't get you don't get last licks. This isn't baseball.
0: Is there a chicken and egg situation here, though? Because do you think maybe it was Stelter saw the writing on the wall when the new management was saying, "No, we actually are serious about doing journalism again," and not whatever this network, whatever this place has become recently? Did Stelter just at that point say, "Oh gosh, well that's me," so I'm on the chopping block? I'm not going to survive this because he has to know sort of his perception and uh, maybe have some sense of self-awareness about his work product and decided, okay I'm unlikely to survive this, so I might as well go down swinging. And, And, you know, and so that just hastened his departure. Or do you think it was him for baffling reasons going out and basically, you know, once again doing you know p r and damage control for a regime that was no longer in charge of the network and in the process trashing some of the new people and therefore you know sealing his fate i I guess it's not really knowable. maybe there'll be more reporting on it, but that would be a very weird move, I think if he felt like he had a future potentially there I don't think that anyone would be dumb enough to then go out and start attacking like the guy who runs the parent company. he must have at least concluded independently, right, that his days were numbered.
4: Or maybe, and I, I, I think that's a very good possibility, or we used the word before to describe Dr. Fauci, arrogance or hubris, right? He really thought he was untouchable. He he was trying to position himself for Chris Cuomo's 9 p.m. slot. Like, he thinks he's a primetime anchor. He's profoundly Wait, actually? Is politics. that true? Yeah. Oh, completely. Because he would say, hey, I'm one of the highest-rated anchors on, uh, on weekends, and you gave Jim Acosta a shot, so... I should get a shot also. That's that's the reporting, right, that that we've heard. And you completely believe it. Uh, but in the end, the reason why so many people have a problem with Ryan Stelter is that he continues to insist that he is really just not only can he lecture you on what is good journalism, what isn't, while practicing the exact opposite, but really wants you to believe that he is objective, that he is nonpartisan. And he's probably, yeah. you can make an argument, a top three partisan guy on the air. Uh, And he'll end up at MSNBC, guy. That's where he's going. He'll go back to the New York Times and, and make a lot of money, if both those places do, for doing his job exceptionally poorly.
0: Well, I mean, it probably wouldn't be a terrible spot for him to land, all things considered. I also thought maybe, like, going to some journalism school and becoming a dean or something like that. But yeah, I think similar, since you're making the Fauci comparison, Fauci famously basically said that he himself represents the science. and. Stelter kind of felt like he represents journalism, journalism itself. So how how could they possibly get rid of me? Well, now they have, and we'll see what's next for him and what's next for them overall. Who else do you think is sweating right now over there?
4: Don Lemon probably is sweating because you got to look at who are the most partisan people on the network. Don Lemon's uh, sweating, and when you can't even get like five hundred thousand viewers, you know, and you're in (laughs) primetime, that's a big problem, right? Uh, I think Gutfeld does something like gets five or six times the audience that he does uh, at 11 o'clock. Just well, Joe, I
0: saw, I saw a statistic the other day that I think it was in the month of July. And this is, I'm, this is a rough recollection here, but it was, I think in July, there were the top 100 rated cable news shows in the country. 80 of those 100 were Fox shows and zero of the 100 were CNN shows. Like that is obviously not sustainable. And anyone who's coming in to take over a network where the numbers are looking that way, I mean, it's it's not surprising that some some big shifts might happen. And it would seem like, you know, tubin, stelter, you know, relatively you know, small potatoes compared to other stuff that might be coming. And I'm not rooting for anyone to lose their job. I, I don't like getting into that kind of thing. But just as people who work in this space and are you know, kind of in, in the universe of cable news and are sometimes you know, critical of our competitors as they are relentlessly critical of our network, it's at least interesting to see what's happening there and if this new future that they've talked about is actually going to materialize perhaps pretty soon because, I mean, it's the, the professional guillotine is starting to fall here on some folks.
4: I keep thinking, okay, yeah, maybe they are going back to the middle, and maybe it'll be like a Bill Parcell situation. It was Bill Parcells. He's this great NFL coach that always went to losing teams and somehow bought them the Super Bowls, right? He nearly got to to the gest to a Super Bowl, even. So that's how you know. Uh, one, two with the Giants, Went there with the Patriots. So wherever he went, he changed the culture and he made it a winning culture. Uh, the problem here is that if Donald Trump runs again, you know, in 2023, and that's when uh, that whole campaign is going to begin. I can't see how, with the current roster, how they just won't revert back to acting like they did over the previous five or six years. Uh, It's just in the DNA. You can't just change that, and then whatever viewers they have left will revolt against them because they've gotten used to that. So I I think Trump kind of plays a role here somehow. Uh, But in the end, I wonder if America really wants the middle, you know, or do they want, you know, strong, provocative opinions? I think the best kind of interviews that I see – uh, on our network is when one person is challenging another, they don't have to yell and scream and start getting personal, but good debate is a good thing. And right now uh, on CNN, it's virtually the same as MSNBC. It's an echo chamber. And, uh, you know, I, so I would hope they would try to get back to some of that. But, again, I guess we'll have to see who who they fire and then who they bring in because Chris Licht again, is reportedly talking to Colbert and talking to Meek and Joe over at Morning Joe. If that's the time to tell you're going to bring in, then you're not going to the center. You're going more to the left.
0: You did mention Gutfeld a second ago, and I read that, what was it, last week, he beat Colbert every single night. It's only the third time he's done that for an entire consecutive week, and then... Was like the total king of late night. If you're beating Colbert, because they go back and forth, he's crushing everyone else. So our colleague Greg, Gut- Greg Gutfeld and that whole crew, Kat and Tyrus and everything, it's just they're crushing it. And it's very cool to watch and very cool to be a small part of it when I get the opportunity. Joe Concha, Fox News contributor, columnist at The Hill. Always appreciate it, Joe. I know you'll be doing some fill-in for me coming up. Appreciate that as well. We'll talk soon.
4: By the way, I One source. As far as writers, as far as you know, everything (laughs) they're dating him. So that's that's quite a success story. Very few people talk about. All right, um.
0: all right, Joe, appreciate it. Joe Concha on the Guy Benson Show. Back after this.
4: The Guy Benson Show. More
3: next.
0: Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you along. Broadcasting from London. At the beginning of the show, I was running through some of the numbers from the latest NBC poll. And a question that was asked the American people, do you believe that we're in a recession? The political class had it out over that question. Should we jettison the long-standing definition of recession because the Biden people feel like it, it's unfair and doesn't apply to the situation? 68 percent of the country disagreed and said, yes, we're in a recession. But the Biden people push back and the Democrats and a lot of their media allies say, yeah, but look at all the jobs and that's a fair point on job creation but here's a point that they won't then follow up on where are the jobs coming from what policies are fueling the job growth despite all the problems in the biden economy well the numbers are now in from the end of july through july 15 of the 18 states that have more jobs now than before the pandemic 15 of the 18 are led by republicans it's not a coincidence Republican-led states, on average, have recovered 106% of lost jobs, compared to just over 92% in Democrat-run states. So Biden might want to take credit for that, but he shouldn't get away with it, for obvious reasons. Another hour coming up, Dr. McCary, straight ahead.
3: Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Ty Benson Show.
0: From London, it's the Guy Benson Show and a brand new hour here on the program. Thank you very much for listening. We are live in the U.K. Glad to have you along. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday and around the clock on demand for free on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. All the information that you might need is right there. GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert as we begin this hour not a good day on Wall Street with the Dow shedding 642 points closing out at 33064 With us now is Dr. Marty McCarry, Fox News contributor, surgeon and professor of health policy at Johns Hopkins and that university's School of Public Health. He's author of the book The Price We Pay: What Broke American Healthcare at Marty McCarry on Twitter. Dr. Always good to have you here.
5: Great to be with you, Guy. I
0: have to start by asking you about the news about Dr. Fauci. He will be stepping down after all these many years from his role in December. Some stories are saying he's stepping down from the current role. Other stories are describing it as a retirement. It seems more like the latter to me. I know he has had this long career that has spanned decades and a lot of different public health challenges. But I think it's hard to escape the reality that he will be most prominently judged, at least, based on these last few years in COVID. As Fauci is heading for the exits, what are your thoughts on him and his leadership and some of the guidance that he offered uh, to two presidents over the course of this pandemic?
5: Well, I think he he will leave several legacies. First of all, he will leave a legacy within the medical establishment and medical community as a true gentleman, he is. He sends thank you notes, he remembers names, he takes time to help people, and that is his longstanding reputation within the medical field. I think in COVID, though, we saw the downsides of not having age diversity in leadership. We saw people holding on, and these people who have dinosaur views of science um, didn't really listen to a younger generation that's more practical. Younger scientists and doctors think more in terms of social justice and equality and what works in society and um, losing credibility in the public by saying something that may be too extreme. So he's going to leave several legacies, one of crushing dissent, one of staying too long, one of harming children by putting out the same message he put out with HIV, that everybody is at risk as if everybody is at equal risk. And I think he's also going to leave a legacy of not showing humility. And that's not good as a role model in science. I think we all need to be showing humility when we make mistakes, own up to it.
0: All right. So on that score, it's actually the perfect transition into this next question and series of questions. Dr. Rochelle Walensky, who runs the CDC, she at least on some level is exhibiting at least on behalf of the institution, some humility by saying, wow, we are in dire straits when it comes to public trust. We've uh, screwed something up rather badly here. We need to stop everything and reboot this enterprise. And there were, I think, some eyebrows raised when they came out and said this. I think it is, at least for what it is, a pretty honest self-assessment for reasons that I, you could go on for hours about the CDC really squandered a huge amount of public credibility in a very short amount of time. And at least Wolensky, I mean, it's the crisis is so bad that she can't deny it. She's sort of leaning into it, saying yes. Um, what did you make of that? And do you think that she and the brain trust currently in charge have what it takes to turn the ship around?
5: No, I don't. I think there's a false presumption here that the CDC can fix itself. You know, I, too, Guy, was a little hopeful when I heard that they were issuing an apology. And I saw the headlines and I thought, gosh, this is exactly what the American public needs right now is owning up to this comedy of errors that for a lot of people resulted in the loss of a loved one or a loss of a, a year and a half of school or meant or a mental health you know, catastrophe in their family, from people being shut out, from kids being shut out of their livelihood. But really, there was no policy change whatsoever. And when you dig deeper, and I'll have a piece on this on foxnews.com tomorrow morning, this was not a result of self-reflection. The CDC is not making an apology because they, they thought, gosh, you know, we could have done better. They are gearing up for a GAO report that is coming out in a few days, and it's going to be scathing. And if you look at the actual policies at the CDC, they've not changed anything. They continue to ignore natural immunity. They just fired 60,000 people in the military. What did the CDC have to say about that? Nothing. Still p- pushing boosters for 10-year-olds. They're still you know, encouraging colleges to have booster mandates. They're pushing baby vaccines. I mean, they have not really made any changes at all, despite the... The irony that with 21,000 employees, they couldn't even put together a website to track COVID at the beginning, and it was a single individual Johns Hopkins engineering grad student that created the Johns Hopkins COVID tracker that the world used. That should result in a complete overhaul of the agency. I
0: mean, that's a pretty devastating assessment, and you know better than I do sort of the ins and outs of that but i was unaware of the context of the forthcoming gao report and if this is just sort of cya in advance saying okay we're about to get shellacked in this you know in this public facing report let's Maybe you know feign some humility now and and sort of brace for impact. That that's definitely a plausible theory on your part about what this is. I was I was curious. Wh- you know why is she doing this all of a sudden? Well, that would make sense if if that's what's at play. So I guess that then leads to the next question. Yeah, and, and if I could much- just add to that, guys. Please, they got
5: a, they have a new communications director for the CDC. Now, they've got over 100 communications people and publicists at the CDC. They have a new person to head all of it up. They just hired that person. The person was at Planned Parenthood. And so it's no mistake that when they came in, they're issuing a statement for the director to read without questions. And look at the person they're bringing in to oversee the entire overhaul. Dr. Mary Wakefield, a Clinton appointee in her 70s. I mean, what? Is that really you want a career government bureaucrat to try to overhaul an agency that's just too, you know, well, broken and, and, and it's
0: if, and if she was at planned parenthood then you know this is someone obviously with a background of abortion activism I and mean, that's, that's going to alienate a lot of people right out of the gate it that seems like a a questionable move and so let's then flip it a little bit, and this is hypothetical because, you know, you are where you are and the C D C is doing what the C D C is doing. But let's just say in an alternate universe, there is a brand new president with a very different outlook who said, Okay, I agree with some of the words that Walensky said about how broken things are and how the trust gap is really a, a huge problem. And so I want doctor Marty McCarry to go in and clean up, you know, cl- clean shop basically, clean house and st- maybe not start over completely, but make big, sweeping needed reforms. If that was something that you were tasked to do, what would you start with? Like, what are the biggest ticket items that you think the CDC should do, even if you're skeptical or cynical about the likelihood of it happening? What should they do?
5: Well, first of all, the entire Public Health Act needs to be rewritten by Congress. That would put more public health authority at the local level and less at the federal level. And number one, I would say, is show more humility. There are a lot of things out there where they should have said, look, maybe we think that the baby vaccine might be beneficial, but the data doesn't really support that. We're going to authorize it anyway to make it available but talk to your local doctor. There really was not a lot of local control. And when you have 21,000 people, that means you need a serious overhaul of the entire agency. It needs to be more nimble. I think you need term limits. We shouldn't have people serving in leadership in our health agencies with terms longer than African presidents, which is, you know, what we see with Fauci and so many of these, Collins and Kessler, so many of the people in power, Um, So there's a lot of changes that need to be done. If you look at what they're announcing they're doing in their overhaul, there's very little they've disclosed. But from what we know, they're starting a new office of health equity and they're creating a new executive committee and a new office for federal interdepartmental communications. So they're Mm -hmm. basically expanding the bureaucracy, not right-sizing it.
0: Well, I I saw that there's a big upcoming – conference of public health officials in boston i believe and the theme of the conference this year is equity and it's like you know we, we're just coming out of a deadly pandemic where a ton of people died and credibility's in the toilet when it comes to you know pu- public health bureaucracy and they're going to come in and, and the big theme that they're going to be coalescing around his equity, that seems to be reading the room, so to speak, exactly wrong if they have any interest in in
5: healing the problem. That's at least how I view it. Well, it's just just so sad because the greatest untold story of the pandemic is how these, these horrific draconian policies disproportionately affected poor and minority communities. While the Zoomocracy that went to their second homes and had private tutors for their kids Didn't have to deal with the issues that inner city Baltimore kids dealt with Mm -hmm. where they may get their food from school. So they've worsened so many of these inequities. And now they're spending a ton of money to talk about it rather than actually do something about it. A lot of hospitals, for example, don't accept Medicaid. And now they're going to be required to spend millions of dollars demonstrating that they're doing something to help health equity. How about just accept Medicaid patients?
0: Yeah. One other point on this. When you look at how CDC is operated and sort of taking it back up to that level, it seemed like they would a lot of the time just put out like a party line, a conclusion that they wanted. And they would sort of shoehorn some data, even if it was really weak, that supported the conclusion, put that out like this is the settled science and really ignore or shut down or, or as you talked about, to squelch actively internally any disagreement or any dissent, that feels, again, sort of like the opposite of what a functioning CDC, a functional CDC would look like and how they would operate.
5: They didn't show any openness to different points of view. Matter of fact, um, from different things that have now become public, We've learned that they were forwarding around articles that many of us wrote saying, like, can you believe this and what should we do about it? And, you know, we need a devastating takedown. To That's a direct quote from the NIH director of basically this idea of targeted protection that Jay Bhattacharya put out. So that's a culture change. That's not something where you create a new office in the government. Right. And I think we're being misled right now to think they can fix themselves.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's just a culture problem. And it seems like maybe they're saying a few good words, but their actions uh, are not terribly auspicious. We'll be watching no one more closely than Dr. Marty McCary, our guest here on The Guy Benson Show. Doctor, thank you. Thanks, Pat. And The Guy Benson Show continues from London, England, right after this short break. Stay with us. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Thanks for listening. So a lot of people on the activist left are freaking out today because there's this new political organization run by Leonard Leo called the Marble Freedom Trust. I'd never heard of it before because it was not really on the scene. Now you'll be hearing more about it because it launched with a donation of one point six billion dollars with a B. 1.6 billion from a single donor. Leonard Leo, of course, is attached to the Federalist Society. He was almost single handedly responsible for vetting and putting together the lists that President Trump used on the Supreme Court. One of Trump's, in my view, best legacies. If you are someone who is grateful that Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett are on the high court, Leonard Leo is someone that you should probably know of. And maybe thank, if you ever run into him, maybe buy him a drink, although he may not need you to buy him a drink with his new organization, Marble Freedom Trust, getting a check for $1.6 billion. But he has been hugely influential and has really gotten results. And so, of course, we're seeing the whole song and dance and rending of garments about the evil influence of money in politics. One of these activists tweeting... Leo has this new organization, $1.6 billion from a single donor. To put that in context, this one group has four times more money than the entire Koch network, the Koch brothers, had at its height in 2012. And a bunch of exclamation points, just people melting down. The corrosive influence of money in our politics, they're back on that train on the left. And it's all crocodile tears. Because if there's anything that the left actually loves, it is money in politics, just their own. I say this all the time. They oppose right-wing money in politics. They love left-wing money in politics. And there's a ton of it. Our politics is awash in left-wing money. In fact, the Democrats, I would argue, are now the party of big money. That's what they have become. Despite all of the rhetoric to the contrary, it just doesn't align with their actual behavior. So it's total rank hypocrisy. And in their minds, it's just the ends justify the means as usual. Oh, well, when it's our money being spent, that's good. That's good for the country and good for democracy. And when it's the other people spending the money, that's bad. That's dark money. Now, here's a piece of context that the freakout is studiously avoiding, highlighted by Ed Whalen and quoting from the New York Times, which wrote a big story about this. New organization and the huge donation, quote, and I'll give credit to the Times for at least including this. For perspective, the $1.6 billion that the Marble Trust reaped from the sale, this donation, is slightly more than the total of $1.5 billion spent in 2020 by 15 of the most politically active nonprofit organizations that generally align with Democrats. In other words, yes this is a stunning amount of money. 1.6 billion, your jaw drops. But that is the I guess budget roughly speaking of this new group that is more or less equivalent to one election cycle's worth of spending from all these huge left-wing groups. In one year, in 2020, they spent a billion and a half dollars to win one election. And that's the equivalent of the whole budget, at least to start, for this Marble Trust Group. And you didn't see any objections to all of that spending to help Joe Biden and the Democrats win in 2020 and defeat Donald Trump. That was all just, you know, good. That's important for the cause. But, oh, a similar figure launching a huge right-wing organization, that cannot stand. They're back to, at least for now, they've toggled back to their deep moral qualms. About the influence of money and billionaires and rich people, as long as it's the bad kind of billionaire, the wrong kind of rich person, not the good ones, the philanthropic ones, the forward-looking ones, the open-minded ones, the cosmopolitan ones, like left-wingers, George Soros and others. So just some context there. And look, if anyone is going to put that money and those resources to good use for the conservative cause— You know, I don't know how it's going to go, but I have a lot of faith in Leonard Leo based on his track record. So Godspeed and good luck. And, you know, if you ever need a speaking gig or something, call me. (laughs) The Guy Benson Show continues right after this.
3: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
0: We are halfway through today's edition, the Monday edition of the Guy Benson Show from the London Bureau of Fox News. Very excited to be here in the U.K. and also excited to chat once again with Josh Krasauer, senior politics reporter at Axios and a Fox News radio political analyst. Josh, always good to chat.
6: Hey, Guy, good to be back on the show.
0: I wanted to start with a soundbite that we addressed last week on the air. I talked about it on the news channel. I talked about it here on the show. I'm particularly interested in getting your take because this is sort of right in your wheelhouse. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell fielding questions about a number of issues. He was asked about the upcoming midterm election cycle, and he said something that I think was fairly, A, innocuous, B, accurate, but it caused – I would say something of an outsized firestorm, at least in my view. Here's what he said. I'm sure you've heard it, but just a refresher. Cut 17.
3: I think there's probably a greater likelihood the House flips than the Senate. Senate races are just different. They're statewide. Uh, Candidate quality has a lot to do with the outcome. All
0: right, Josh. So it seems like there maybe are some people out there who want to be angry at mitch mcconnell especially at least in this case in this context on the right and they seized on that saying oh he's giving up this is defeatism he's already blaming by extension donald trump for upcoming losses that he doesn't want to take responsibility for like it seemed like there was just a lot of stuff being projected onto mcconnell and onto these comments just from a standpoint of pure analysis it's kind of hard to disagree with any syllable that we just heard from him.
6: Guy, we've been talking about this ourselves for yeah. months. And yes. Mitch McConnell has always been something of a very uh, tight-lipped analyst as as Senate leader. Uh, he doesn't usually talk a lot about his Senate candidates, about the Senate landscape. But when he does, he chooses his words carefully. And what he's saying in that soundbite is that look, uh, candidate quality is a big issue for Republicans this year. It has, you know, you look at the facts, guy. It has nothing to do with Mitch McConnell's candidates not not winning. Uh, in fact, Mitch McConnell ultimately got got on the same page, got to uh, supporting some of the same candidates that Donald Trump did in 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 the end run and played played team ball, got behind Herschel Walker in Georgia got behind Adam Laxalt, the candidate that both Trump and McConnell got behind in Nevada. But um, look, there there, have been these competitive primaries involving candidates that Trump endorsed, and they're underperforming at this stage. And that's what Mitch McConnell is pointing out, that races that probably should be pure toss-ups or perhaps leaning the Republican direction are now looking like they're, they're favoring Democrats at this early stage.
0: It's still early, and I don't think McConnell's saying it's over. By any stretch, he said there's a greater likelihood the House flips. I mean, obviously, everyone said that for a year. I mean, that that has just been a statement of political reality for quite some time. It was always going to be harder to win the Senate, but also possible if Republicans, let's say, win the national popular vote, which is sort of a messy metric, but just as a back of the envelope thing. The national vote by two points, let's say the NBC poll that just came out is exactly right, and the Republicans win the national vote by two points, that would be a pretty good-sized red wave. The House would absolutely flip, and the Senate would be kind of interesting. All right, which way does that go? If the Republicans can rebuild a larger lead and the wave gets bigger then even some candidates who – are flawed, who have trouble with fundraising, who are first-time candidates who've never run for anything before. Now they're seeking Senate seats statewide. They could maybe get pulled over the top. Maybe they'll you know, run good races in the fall. I don't think McConnell's saying none of that is possible. I'm a little bit puzzled, as you might be able to tell, by the backlash here.
6: Yeah, I mean, the there is a lot of base... Maga animosity towards Mitch McConnell because of the history he has, uh, especially in the last year and a half, uh, thinking that you know feuding uh, at first with Donald Trump after January 6th and quietly not not being the biggest Trump supporter or fan ever since. So there, there is there. That's the subtext that it sounds like. Like there, there are a lot of Trump loyalists that just don't like Mitch McConnell, and the polling backs that up. Uh, That said,
0: Josh, and and I think maybe you were about to, to, you know, comma and. McConnell ultimately, though, is a guy who has his eye on the prize, which is the you know, power and the ability to make change in the country and to set an agenda, which he can only do as majority leader, not minority leader. He wants to win the majority back very badly for all sorts of different reasons, and he has poured huge amounts of resources into these races already and you know, scheduling airtime and all this stuff. McConnell and his aligned groups – are very much filling the void right now. And moving forward, at least, you know, on paper and what they've announced they're going to do, because as we've touched on, a number of the candidates themselves are really having trouble raising money, keeping pace with the Democrats who are making money hand over fist. Trump has also brought in just a, a pile of cash in recent years through various email campaigns and all of that. And I know that, Some people are wondering, quietly on the Republican side, whispering to each other, where's all that money going? Is he going to actually back up and support the candidates that he himself has endorsed? He wanted them to be the nominees. He's gotten his way in a lot of the cases. Is he going to take some of that war chest and help them win? Right now, McConnell and his allies are the ones doing that, even though they might not be the nominees that McConnell would have selected if he could have done so unilaterally. He's playing team ball on this. Whereas, at least from a financial perspective, Trump is kind of on the sidelines here. That contradicts, I think, some of the anger and the allegations being directed at the Kentucky senator.
6: Yeah, I mean, none of the criticism is is particularly rational. McConnell plays to win, and he likes to have electable candidates in, in swing states. He knows sort of the, the, the types of issues and the types of messages that these candidates can offer to win in, in, in purple and blue states. But, uh, you know, Trump's favored candidates by and large uh, have taken a different approach, at least uh, in the primary and the immediate aftermath of these primaries. Um, but, you know, look, the, the the bigger test is what, you, what you're talking about, Guy, which is that Donald Trump's aligned super PAC has over $100 million cash on hand, and hasn't spent a single dollar on any of the candidates that Trump endorsed. The The, 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 the endorsement was valuable, certainly, uh, in the primary, but there hasn't been any other follow-through from Trump's organization to help some of these embattled Republican candidates, like a J.D. Vance, for example, uh, help help him get, get off the ground, have money to compete against Tim Ryan. So what you're seeing instead is that Mitch McConnell's uh, super PAC the Mitch mcconnell Alliance Super PAC uh, is spending almost thirty million dollars in Ohio to help Trump's candidate J.D. Vance get uh, on air and get 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 into more competitive shape against the Democrat Tim Ryan. So that's a there are a lot of other examples like that where yep. you would expect the pre- former president to help out some of the, the folks he, he he helped you know become uh, nominees, help them win the primaries. But once they got across the finish line in the primary, you're not seeing a lot more. Uh, follow through from the former president and helping them win these actual general elections.
0: I also don't like the precriminations to a certain extent. And I use that term on Fox News on Friday on America reports because they were asking me about this. And I said, ultimately, after the first Tuesday in November, a couple days later, the dust will have settled and we will know if the quote unquote unelectable candidates were in fact unelectable. Right. It could be enough of a red wave where. A bunch of Republicans, regardless of their experience or their perceived quality, go over the top and they win. But if they underperform, especially in Senate races and maybe some governor races, and that can – get tied back to previous debates from the primary era and who was putting thumbs on the scale for various people, then I think we will definitely have more than enough time to get into recriminations. I just think it's premature to be freaking out about any of it right now from any direction. And so I would be surprised if McConnell says anything else terribly provocative about this. I think he might just get back to keeping his powder dry, seeing what happens after Labor Day uh, and watching the polling when it starts to really count uh, mid next month into early October. Josh, I do want to ask you about this. You wrote about it. The FBI Mar-a-Lago raid. That has absolutely been a huge issue that a lot of my audience is concerned about. I know that Fox has covered it quite a lot. And we've seen as a result of The whole episode, an increase in support for President Trump among Republican voters. And I wonder what you make of that, how you're reading into some of those numbers. Is it a flash in the pan where it's sort of rally around the leader, rally around the flag? Here's the FBI and the Biden Justice Department doing something highly suspicious. It's Russia gate all over again. Uh, And so people are sort of having a moment here where it's helping Trump. Or is this the type of thing that if he's looking ahead to 2024, this could be a consolidating event that 's more consequential, more long lasting. What do you think
6: among Republican voters with the republican base? This is a galvanizing moment for the former president. If he wants to run, he now is going to have more supporters that are infuriated about the fbi uh you know investigating searching his his mar-a-lago uh resort uh, it, 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 there was a window and, and, and probably more than a window but when trump was not front and center in the news for much of 2022 when ron DeSantis was focusing on a lot of legitimate concerns about covid and education and media bias and you name it those were the issues that really did animate the republican base but now with the the fbi raid of mar it lago it, it now is the dominant story in all the cable news shows. It's a dominant story in the Republican ecosystem. And when Trump is front and center, that's when his voters tend to, to rally behind him. Now, I don't think this necessarily helps him in a general election. It doesn't help his, his overall favorability and approval as uh, – a both uh, recent Fox polls and there was a new NBC poll just this this past week showing that Trump's numbers are not good overall, but among the base of the Republican Party, the folks that decide who the next nominee is going to be, the, he's gotten a big bump in, the, in, in at least in this moment from that FBI uh, search, and and did, he's going to play that up, and it's it's only going to be advantageous for Trump as he tries to look at another presidential campaign.
0: Last question, Josh, and it's back to you. Mentioned DeSantis, it's Florida, it's the Senate. Uh, You know, the battle for control of the U.S. Senate, and I addressed it a little bit last week as well. We had not seen a lot of Florida polling for months, almost no public polling at all. Now we've had a flurry of a couple in the last week or so, and the consistent number is that Ron DeSantis looks to be leading for re-election by a pretty healthy margin. Uh, The worst poll I saw for him was he was up four or five points. The best, he was up, I believe, eight points against uh, Charlie Crist. In that ballpark against Nikki Fried, they've got, at the end of the month, uh, their primary in Florida. It's the Senate race numbers in Florida that have been bizarre because one poll had Rubio, Marco Rubio, actually trailing Val Demings and lagging behind DeSantis by 12 percentage points, which I simply don't believe. Uh, And then there was another poll that had Rubio up 11 points in that race, which seems, I mean, even in a year like this, implausible to me. And I was sort of going through and looking at some of the Senate polling, especially sort of in the summer and home stretch in the last couple of cycles. And, Josh, I mean, this is not necessarily me taking a shot at any individual pollster, but there has been a lot of garbage Senate and presidential polling in recent cycles. And so I guess the question is, am I right to be maybe not instantly dismissive of some of this stuff, but extremely skeptical of – Some of the eye popping or buzz generating Senate polling because, you know, it's not got a great track record across the board.
6: You are right to be skeptical, guy. I mean, there a lot of the polling you're talking about from Florida, first of all, I'm a believer that there are some really good polls. The Fox poll is one of the, the gold standard polls in the industry. The NBC poll, really good poll that has had a very good track record. There are a handful of others. And Selzer, um, when she does Iowa polling, I will look at those numbers very carefully. But there's frankly a lot of, of just fly-by-night pollsters that get attention they get mentioned on social media, but they're not the best pollsters. They're not the best. It's not the best methodology, um, and that's what you're seeing in Florida. You're seeing um, some some polling that's been done by um, a bunch of outfits, but nothing at the level that I would uh, expect a campaign to look at closely. I mean, I think what we're seeing in Florida, guy, is yes. I mean, I think the race may be closer than people expect because Val Demings has raised more money than Marco Rubio, so she's been on the airwaves for for a longer amount of time and that perhaps has closed the margins uh to a closer degree than maybe some people would expect but the internal data uh that i've heard from both both sides does not have her leading marco rubio it shows that rubio you know has a smaller advantage and once rubio starts spending his own money uh, on the airwaves in a state that trump won by about four points yep. it, that, that that's likely going to consolidate that's yeah like if DeSantis, like life.
0: if DeSantis comes in and wins the state by seven or eight points, let's say, which would be an extremely impressive in a state like Florida, Marco Rubio is going to be reelected, and it's not really going to be that close. I mean, there's not going to be you know, hundreds of thousands of DeSantis Demings voters. It's just not a thing. And yet people treat one poll like that like it's you know a credible thing and media's out there touting it credulously and i just wanted to tap the brakes on that maybe slam the brakes on that and i want to make sure to sort of like do a sanity check on my own behalf by asking you the question and we've got to leave it there for now we'll pick it up next time with josh krassauer senior politics reporter at axios and a political analyst here at fox news radio josh thank you so much thanks guy we'll be right back on the guy benson show
3: Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show.
0: We continue here on the Guy Benson Show. Well, Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm under President Biden was on Fox News Sunday yesterday morning. And Trace Gallagher, who joined us on Friday, he was the anchor. And he asked a question that a lot of people have been asking Democrats about the so-called inflation reduction act and the general question is how is this huge amount of spending plus the tax increases the doubling of the irs all of it how is that going to bring down costs how is it going to do what the name of the bill says it's going to do how will it help families right now and the answers have been very weak from democrats including some people who just refuse to answer it like that congressman from maryland saying next question jennifer granholm has at least tried to answer the question i think she's done it very unconvincingly and she was test driving an answer last week i said surely they're not going to stick with that but i guess that is now the official talking point here's granholm responding to trace yesterday cut sixteen
1: what do you say to the families who simply can't afford this stuff in the first place if you are low income you can get your home entirely weatherized through the expansion from the bipartisan infrastructure law, a significant expansion. You don't have to pay for anything. If you want uh, heat pumps, insulation, new windows, that is covered. If you are moderate income today, you can get 30 percent off the price of solar panels. Those solar panels can be financed so you don't have to have the big outcom- outlay at the front. It's a significant incentive.
0: And then, of course, there's the other stuff like retrofitting your house. There's the electric vehicle idea, the fantasy that they're selling also out there. But her argument is, well, you can get a big discount with these tax credits. And it sounded like she was saying you can go and borrow money and finance this stuff to make all of these changes in your house, and then you'll get a portion of that money back from taxpayers. And I think to the majority of Americans, middle class, working class people – who currently say they're living paycheck to paycheck, it's sort of a slap in the face that the Inflation Reduction Act, the big way that they're going to save money is by going out and spending thousands of dollars and then getting some of that money back. It's like, oh yeah, go get your 60 grand electric vehicle and some of that will come back to you in the form of a tax credit. That might be appealing to richer people who would qualify for this money under the bill, under the law, not so much people who are really struggling. I think it is a tone-deaf argument that they're making, but perhaps it's the best one that they've got, which I think is telling. Final hour of the Guy Benson show is coming up. Carol Markowitz is coming up next, talking about schools, the impending departure of Dr. Fauci, and much more. Stay with us. It is the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show from London, England. Today and tomorrow in the Fox News London Bureau. They are very generously hosting me here. I'm grateful to be here and thankful for all of you. Tuning in every day, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And this final hour is our happy hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is terrific. Please check it out if you haven't already, only if you're 21 plus, of course. Always drink responsibly, thelongdrink.com. You can find out where it's sold near you or order online, thelongdrink.com. Our website is guybensonshow.com. Everything you need related to the program right there at your fingertips, including the free podcast on demand every day, no charge. Follow us on social media, Twitter, and Instagram. It's at GuyBensonShow. Show. With us now is Carol Markowitz, columnist at The New York Post and FoxNews.com. You see her all over our networks, the family of networks on the regular. Carol, always great to talk to you. Welcome back.
2: Hi, Guy. Thanks so much for having me.
0: I wanted to start just getting your reaction to the announcement that Dr. Fauci will be stepping down at the end of the year in December. I know that the pandemic was hugely disruptive to you and your family. You moved and uprooted your life because of it obviously that can't all be left at his feet i mean a lot of things are beyond anyone's control but the policies that he helped shape at the federal level that were really embraced at certain state levels as well must have influenced at least partially this big decision that you made you and your husband to move down to florida from new york so now that fauci is i guess on the way out i'd imagine you might have a thought or two
2: yeah you know i I I tend to think that he was more incompetent than evil. I know that a lot of people today are saying, you know, arrest him and he's evil and all of that. I think he is just an incompetent bureaucrat who got way too much power during a very dangerous time and that way too many politicians relied on his word when his word frequently changed and didn't make any sense and really just was not a path forward for the country. So I think his time as a public servant has been really unfortunate. I think he caused a lot of damage. I think people died because of the ideas that he espoused. Um, But I think it largely stems from deep, deep incompetence.
0: I also think with him, it was the arrogance that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And, you know, when he talked about himself as the human embodiment of science Attacks or criticisms against him aren't really against him. They're of science itself. I saw that he said he basically has inspired a lot of people to go into the medical profession because he stands for truth. And I think that's probably part of what galls a lot of folks. And there's the the outcomes, of course, and the recommendations that he made. My one defense of him would be it's kind of his job to be hyper-cautious, probably too cautious – and people who are actually elected to make decisions have to take into consideration a whole array of different factors, including the most hypercautious worst-case scenario doomsaying from a guy like Fauci. Let's keep everyone in their house forever. You know that's not a fair paraphrase, but on one end of the spectrum, and then the you know letter rip. We need to keep the economy open, etc. On the other end, leaders had to make choices, and I think too many leaders were too deferential and in some ways almost like worshiping of the guy for far too long and some of the leaders who did the best job in the pandemic were rightfully and openly skeptical based on data pretty early in the process i think that that's sort of my biggest issue with him other people empowering him as much as they did
2: I think that's a very charitable take on him because uh, I, I followed him very closely, with what he said very closely, because it impacted me day to day in New York. and. Uh, he would change his mind frequently, and often because of political reasons. So, for example, when Donald Trump was president, he said that schools should be closed. But when Biden became president, he said schools should be open. But then when uh, Biden was having trouble getting a spending bill through, he went on TV and said that the spending bill had to pass before schools could open. He was completely politicized. It wasn't about, you know, being extra cautious. It was about kind of where the political winds were blowing. And I think that did so much damage to us. You know, I— all the time now, and you know, and the way we handle the vaccines, I think all of that is travesty, especially where kids are concerned. Because now, and we knew this was coming, but I hear so many people say that they don't trust other vaccines now, that they don't trust what, the, what health officials say about those vaccines. Um, and, and so much of it is because of Anthony Fauci and so much of it is because of, you know, had the parallel agency, the CDC, um, where they just refuse to be straight with the American people. And we're going to be feeling the repercussions of that for generations
0: Yeah, and I think it's a fair point for you to make that he definitely got political, I would say increasingly political. The early days, it felt like everyone was scrambling and scared and didn't know what was coming. It was a novel virus. He, of course, helped downplay the likeliest origin of the virus, at least when he was first asked about it and one of his cronies – and someone he was funding was thanking him for tamping down that theory, which was treated as misinformation, then became much more plausible over time and I think you 're right, as the pandemic wore on, it seemed like he sort of warmed to the idea of having all this power and he did you know flip on a couple of things and would get quite angry when anyone would call him on it or ask him about it. And so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot that he has to answer for. There's no doubt about that. I think his legacy will be debated for a long time. I never was a huge Fauci lover or hater. I said that many times. I didn't understand the people who wanted him jailed. I didn't understand the people who put up, like, paintings of him in the living room, and they would all, you know, like, pray to him every night. That was super weird, like Fauci tattoo type people. I was kind of in the middle, and as the pandemic wore on, And as it really started to feel increasingly like it was about control, my patience with him grew thinner and thinner and obviously so thin in your case that you left New York altogether and moved to a state that was uh, very explicitly rejecting a lot of what he was recommending, the Faucian dystopia, as your governor likes to talk about it. And, Carol, I want to shift because a huge issue was schools. You mentioned your kids, schools being open. There's currently something of a teacher shortage in the country, and I know there's debates around why that's the case, and a lot of it is the enrollment in schools is dropping because people, I think, parents have seen what they've seen, and they're saying enough of this. We're going to go to homeschooling and private schools, but the discussion out there is that there's a teacher shortage, and the secretary of education was on TV over the weekend Assessing what he thought the problem was. This was on NBC. Miguel Cardona from the Biden administration. He said this in cut 18.
5: This teacher shortage issue is a symptom of what I call a uh, teacher respect issue. We need to respect the profession better. Uh, College graduates earn 33 percent more than your average teacher uh, when they leave. And adjusted for inflation over the last 25 years, teachers have made a $29 increase in their salary. That's unacceptable. The fact that we've normalized teachers driving Uber on the weekends to make ends meet or working Mm -hmm. at a restaurant waiting tables to make ends meet, we have to lift the profession. We're speaking boldly about that, and we want the rest of the country uh, to respond. This didn't start with the pandemic. It's really important that we note that. I've been in education over 20 years, uh, 25 years. We've been talking about fighting for respect in the profession for decades.
0: All right, Carol. So respect has to be earned, and I know he's Coming back to this talking point about not enough money or pay for teachers, I think a lot of taxpayers, parents or otherwise, have to be wondering, well, didn't we just pour hundreds of billions of dollars into a giant education slush fund, supposedly for the schools related to COVID in the rescue plan? How do they keep coming back to this well over and over again, this talking point, this argument, when a stunning historic amount of money has been spent and just – thrown at schools related to the pandemic in the last couple of years.
2: That's right. And places like New York spend about $30,000 per child, if, if it's not more at this point, um, to get an education at the public school in New York city. And so you have a situation where this money is going towards the schools and it's being spent on nonsense. I mean, I, I, there's so many examples of this, but first of all, just the administrative state in schools has gotten so bad. They, basically spend all their money on, like, very high-priced tires. who do ridiculous things like, um, you know, bring in uh, the the Kennedys of the world to talk about various anti-racism initiatives and stuff. And they, they spend a lot of money on this kind of thing. And every dollar spent on that is a dollar not spent on quality teachers. I am actually a very big teacher defender. Especially, I think um, throughout the pandemic, because every time teachers were kind of criticized for closed schools, I reminded people that there were plenty of teachers who a wanted to be in schools, wanted to be in person, but couldn't be because of the union. But b there were places like Florida and other states where the teachers were going every single day, and they didn't know what they were risking, and they were there anyway every single day for these kids. So I, you know, I'm very pro-teacher, and I think that money is the kind of not the issue here. When when you have like private schools, for example, that pay teachers less than public schools do, and yet they don't face a similar teacher shortage. The issue is not the the pay. The issue is the respect and the culture at schools for these teachers. And another thing that doesn't get a lot of, Um, attention, is that behavioral problems have gotten so bad at schools post-pandemic. These kids do not know how to act anymore. Um, In, you know, Tony neighborhoods, they get emails about kids destroying the bathrooms um, or really acting out and It's not getting enough play because, of course, we can't blame. We can't, you know, the the idea that closed schools cause damage is one that we still are not accepting as a country, um, because the left, you know, really won't let us get there. But I think a lot of us are. Thing that drives people away. Oh, of course, of course, we are. Yeah, but I mean, I'm saying, you know, the New York Times still has not quite gotten to the damage that the closed schools cause. They've gotten to where the academics, for example. have are an issue now because of the closed schools that we had, but they haven't gotten to where really emotional damage was caused by these closed schools and just what the repercussions of that will be going forward.
0: Yeah. And on the issue of teacher respect, I think it has to be a two way street and there's a lot of parents who feel like there was not a lot of respect afforded to them or to their kids or the well-being of their children during the pandemic, not from a lot of these individual teachers who are fantastic, as you rightly point out, but sort of the big education lobby, the unions. Randy Weingarten almost seems like a fictional character sometimes. She's such a villain in this stuff. She just had to apologize, a little my bad tweet, for sharing false information, misinformation about banned books, and she had to backtrack on that. She does almost seem like a human embodiment of the need for school choice. I think she's actually quite an asset.
2: Yes, I agree. Nobody does more for school choice than Randy Weingarten and the unions, absolutely. (laughs)
0: Last topic, we talked about Florida. We talk about it a lot. You are like you have the zeal of the convert of a new Floridian, and you've got some big elections coming up, of course, down in the Sunshine State. The governor is up for re-election. Senator Rubio is up for re-election. I know that DeSantis, I saw at least on social, was having some event down in Miami-Dade, and some leftists decided that they were going to try to make a point and really own DeSantis. They hired a plane to tow a banner around that called him a fascist. And I think it's sort of an interesting thing for them to believe that that would be effective with anyone throwing around that term the way that they are so loosely it's it's very i think off-putting and just like a little tantrum that actually doesn't persuade a single person but you also made i saw on twitter the very simple but insightful point how many people typically flee to fascism (laughs) because people have been flooding into florida during the pandemic for all sorts of reasons and it's not because they're like "Ooh, that's some fascism down there let's go join it
2: Absolutely. And you know, our, our family, I have written about it a lot, but we really feel like we've come to freedom. And that was our reason for, for doing this. We felt like we we came here to be free and uh, we just moved into a new house today. I'm going through boxes and I came across all, all my kids masks and threw them right in the garbage. I'm never going to have to use them again because I live in Florida and I have faith that my you know, government here will not be implementing masks again. They will not override the science and do something like that. I I think the idea of calling him a fascist is because they really just don't have any other ideas. And with Republicans, it's always like, the liberals either say that they're evil or stupid, and you obviously can't call them stupid, so they're going to have to go with evil. I think he's ready for that fight. I'm not concerned about DeSantis being too sad about a plane flying over with a ridiculous <laughs> message. Um, but those of us who came here to be free, we know the truth, and I think a lot of Americans around the country do too.
0: Carol Markowitz, columnist at the New York Post and FoxNews.com. Always a pleasure chatting, Carol. We'll talk again soon. Thank you so much. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour from London. We'll be right back next.
3: The Guy Benson Show. More next. Happy
0: Hour, Guy Benson Show. London, England, today and tomorrow. Very excited to be here. I did see this, though, back home last night on ESPN. It was Sunday night baseball, and the telecast was from Williamsport, Pennsylvania where they were doing the Little League Classic, where I guess it's sort of a Little League stadium, but a full MLB-sized field, and two major league teams play each other in front of a few thousand fans. And I had actually not seen this before, but apparently they've been doing it for a couple years now. It's not that new of a tradition. Still fairly new. I think it's been about five years. And on the broadcast, it was the normal ESPN team, and then they had guests in the booth, So it became a four-man booth featuring former President George W. Bush, our 43rd president, and then the commissioner of Major League Baseball, Rob Manfred. And at one point, the play-by-play man for ESPN, Carl Ravitch, asked a question of the commissioner, basically saying, hey, is this going to happen again next year, this type of event? And the commissioner started to give an answer, and then George W. Bush just swoops in with a little bit of a jab, At something that Manfred infamously did that we were highly critical of here on this show, I was glad that Bush at least raised it because I think Manfred should be reminded frequently that there were a lot of people who will remember that and not appreciate what happened. Here's what it sounded like on ESPN last night in Cut 19.
6: Do we have a game next year? Have we talked about that yet or no? You know, can I tell you, the last time I made news with you, it didn't go that well for me, is my recollection. Was that uh... (laughs) that when you canceled the All-Star game in Atlanta? (laughs) It's probably worse, actually.
0: (laughs) Was that when you canceled the All-Star game in Atlanta? And Bush definitely said it with a wink, but I think it was a bit of a pointed reminder. It's like, oh, yeah, that's something that you did. I know Manfred has mumbled a few things more recently about how Major League Baseball wants to stay out of politics now because he got raked over the coals for that one. But it's still a choice that he made as the leader of Major League Baseball to cave to a fabrication, a totally false narrative that was exposed as the lie that it was all along just a few weeks ago in Georgia, I guess months at this point, during their primary election. Right. We were told that the voting reform laws in Georgia signed by Governor Kemp were worse than Jim Crow. That's what President Biden said. Jim Crow 2.0 was Stacey Abrams line. It was voter suppression on steroids. This is what we were fed. This is what the left wing activists said. A bunch of corporations just fell in line and said, oh, yes, no, we oppose this. This is very concerning to us. MLB went the next step, yanking the all star game out of Atlanta based on the lie. And then finally, the lie could be tested, and it was just totally exploded by not just record-setting turnout in the primary in Georgia, this most recent one, but just blown-out-of-the-water turnout, the opposite of suppression. And Rob Manfred really made a huge mistake by politicizing baseball and falling for a lie and caving to a mob, I think, in a very ignorant and hypocritical way for reasons that we've talked about here on the show. So good for W giving him just a little bit of a tweak there that he very much deserved. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour resumes after this break.
3: Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson.
0: Churning ahead on the Happy Hour here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm in London, England. GuyBensonShow.com, our website, podcast, is always free. So today I went to breakfast. I'm not a big breakfast guy. I'm not one of the brunch gays, so to speak. It's just not my thing. But one of the best breakfasts I've ever had was here in London a few years ago. My friend Natasha took a few of us to this brunch at an Indian restaurant. There's a few of them in London. It's called Dishoom. And I like Indian food. I usually think of it as dinner not breakfast but she said you've got to try it i said okay so they have an item on the menu which is a traditional english breakfast with all the pieces of what that would entail eggs and sausage and bacon the kind of roasted tomato baked beans mushrooms and some toast or bread they took that concept and they put an indian spin with indian spices and flair and it was just delicious it's one of the only breakfasts i've ever remembered craving and wanting again so because i was back i decided why not there's one near my hotel so i went i did it i had a great time it was just as delicious as i had remembered i took a photo i posted it on my instagram story at guy p benson and producer christine didn't like it she said she thought it looked gross christine what is wrong with you
1: well i mean how much time do we have
0: Yeah, we don't have a lot of time at all but in this context what is wrong with you
1: uh, all of that looked <laughs> terrible why would you eat what is it baked beans
0: yeah How it's something that, that they from... do here it's odd Ooh. it's an odd thing but it's actually really good And with some of that indian spice it was even better I, it is really good and i think you should try it because i usually i don't steer you wrong on food do i
1: no you don't but i don't i don't think was there a tomato or well yep, oh, hold on a roasted tomato a tomato, tomat- a tomato?
0: Oh, God. Now, now we're doing the accent. We're up on a break. Dan, I know you're on my team on this one. Absolutely. I love baked beans, put them in everything.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: Very good. When we come back, I've got to tell you this story a surprise concert experience here in London, a last minute decision by me. The home stretch is next.
3: Guy Benson will be right back.
0: Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show from London today and tomorrow. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast every day. Well, I mentioned it last week, and if you follow me on social media, at Guy P. Benson on Twitter and Instagram, uh, you are well aware that I'm over here in London, and I've been posting a few little videos and photographs from my journey. In fact, I posted on my Instagram story, earlier today, just a very cool shot of the studio that they have here at the Fox Bureau in London. It just is a beautiful studio setup. And so you can check that out if you want to, at Guy P. Benson, that's Instagram, same handle on Twitter. And something that came to my attention, when would it have been? It would have been Friday night into Saturday. I posted that I was on my way to London, maybe from the flight or something. And one of my followers on social, sent me a DM and said, hey, by any chance, are you going to the Coldplay concert at Wembley Stadium in London while you're there? And I thought to myself, no, I didn't know that there was a Coldplay concert. And so I just decided, out of curiosity, to look it up. And I googled tickets. There was a Saturday show and a Sunday show. And I couldn't do the Saturday show, but the Sunday show, which wasn't even supposed to happen, it was supposed to be on Friday, but there was some sort of strike here. And people couldn't get to the stadium. I think the tube was closed or something. And so they moved the show because of a transit strike from Friday to Sunday. And because of that occurrence, I was able to at least be available to go on Sunday night. The issue was it was totally sold out, 90,000-seat stadium. And the remaining seats were either very bad in the secondary market, like not good seats and still quite expensive or ludicrously expensive if you wanted to have a better vantage point. And I also didn't have anyone to go with. I know a few people in London, a couple friends, but it was kind of a last minute ask. Hey, do you want to drop a few hundred dollars potentially to go to a concert? And if they weren't already going, maybe they weren't that into Coldplay. So I was contemplating, do I want to spend all this money? And do I want to go to a concert by myself? And the outcome the short answer is yes and yes because i did a poll on my twitter should i do it and i heard from a lot of people who had been to coldplay concerts through the years both on twitter and on instagram and there were certain recurring themes that i heard about just the quality and fun of the show and i very much had one of those yolo moments you only live once and i decided okay I'm going to splurge, I'm going to treat myself, I'm going to go see this concert because, number one, I'd never been to Wembley. It's one of those iconic venues, right, that you have heard about sporting events and concerts there through the decades. And this is new Wembley, but still, Wembley Stadium is Wembley Stadium, and I wanted to go to Wembley. Here was an opportunity. And number two, even though I am not a Coldplay fan, I'm not even a huge fan of too many musical artists at all. I would call myself a Billy Joel fan, for example. Like, full-blown Billy Joel fan. If he's coming to town, I'll go see him play. I'll travel to see him. Right? There's very few artists or bands like that. But Coldplay has enough hits. Like, they just did the Super Bowl, didn't they? Was it this past year or the year before? And you need a certain critical mass of hits to be able to pull that off. And they have it, right? And I'd heard from friends in the past and then hearing from a lot of you on social media that they put on a hell of a show. So I said, fine. So I went on to... StubHub UK, and because I was only looking for a single ticket, I was able to find not a good deal, it was still outrageously expensive, but a relatively good deal for a seat that was in the very first row of the second deck, just off of stage left, so the vantage point was terrific, and it was part of the club seating area, so it was kind of nicer getting in there, and the restrooms, and the concessions, and all of that, and so... For what I ended up paying, which was not that much more than if I'd been near the very top of the upper deck, as far removed from the stage as you could get, that was not too bad. And then I was just sort of wondering, is this going to be an awkward experience being at a concert by myself, watching a band that I don't love, but I kind of like? That was the mentality going in. And what I can just tell you is, as... A form of pure entertainment, the show is extraordinary, what Coldplay does. It is a visually stunning spectacle. They gave us all these wristbands that light up different colors, but it just looks like a little piece of plastic that you're wearing on your wrist. And I don't know what the chip technology is, but it's amazing, where they can... Create all these light effects across the entire stadium of 90,000 people with strobe effects and different colors lighting up at different times. And sometimes just by deck of the stadium, it would be sort of different colors or a different pattern. And so your eyes were just constantly looking everywhere. And it was this immersive sort of experience. And then they've got this over the top stage as well. They had pyrotechnics, they had fireworks. They had another secondary stage right in the middle of the whole kind of mosh pit crowd that lit up all these crazy colors. And just from that perspective alone, even if you're totally agnostic on their music, it is an experience. The other thing that I'll say about it is Chris Martin, who's their front man and their lead singer, he just has this infectious positivity on stage. He just seemed genuinely Happy to be there and thrilled. He's played how many huge stadiums through his career, but here he is in his home country, in his home city, with people belting out the words. And he, maybe he's a very good actor, but he at least seemed to be genuinely moved at times. And it was just an uplifting experience, like this relentlessly uplifting thing. It was a joyful thing to watch. That's the only way I can describe it. And I say that I understand. I did hear from some of you saying, oh, no, they're left wing. And they dedicated one of their shows to Louis Farrakhan in Chicago. Obviously, I don't like that. And Chris Martin endorsed defund the police back in 2020. I don't like that. Also, I don't make my entertainment consumption decisions based on the politics of entertainers, because if I did, I would consume almost nothing. Right. So you kind of have to get over some of that stuff and just appreciate things for what they are. And so I just sat in this seat and let the experience wash over me. And there were times where I just felt almost like a lump in my throat of nostalgia and sentimentality and happiness. Some of their songs are are good and moving, especially in a setting like that with so many people. And there are people on either side of me who are huge Coldplay fans, singing every word. And they were having like this existential (laughs) experience. So it was just, it was very, very cool. And I captured quite a lot of it on my phone. And I posted some of it on my Instagram story, which should still be active for a while. If you want to go follow me or watch it at Guy P Benson, some of the big hits. And they do have a lot of hits like granted. There were a few songs that I'd forgotten. I'm like, Oh yeah, this is also one of theirs. The song that I was most excited to hear because I've heard at previous concerts it's just sort of like a song that they really blow out was sky full of stars and there's a build up to not the chorus but this beat drop and then this musical interlude that's just so fun and upbeat and in my head I was like okay they're going to build up to the beat drop and then this stadium is going to go bonkers Like, it is going to be so loud. The dancing, the singing, God knows what they're going to do with all these wristbands. The lighting is going to look phenomenal. So I had my phone out, ready to go. And just if you're not a Coldplay fan or you aren't familiar with their music, here's the moment in the song that this was leading up to. So here's how it sounds on the studio album version. Just for reference, cut 20. So imagine that musical part just sort of thumping in a huge stadium filled with 90,000 people partying and dancing and everything. So I was so excited for that moment. So my phone, I I had a great shot all ready to go. And then he sort of head-faked the whole crowd. He did something I had never seen at a concert. Chris Martin is singing the song. He's running from one stage to the next through the middle of the crowd, building up to the moment, and then... Here's what happened in Cut 21. So there's some confused reactions there from the crowd, some laughter. You could also hear almost like the swell and the crescendo of anticipation. Everyone was waiting for this moment. You could just feel viscerally inside the stadium that people were going to go nuts and then he stopped the song he just stopped singing he said hold on wait a second wait a second the music stopped all the lights went out the show was paused right at that moment it's like what are they doing so he went up and he wiped some sweat off of his face he got a swig of water from a water bottle he chatted with His fellow band members, there's four of them. The bassist, by the way, is named Guy. Fantastic. Anyway, they were having a chat. We couldn't hear them. And then he announced to the crowd that they had had a band meeting. Obviously, this was planned, but we just didn't know it was coming. They had had a band meeting, he said. And they decided that they wanted to perform the song from the start again. But he wanted to ask a favor of the crowd, which was for all of us to put our phones away. He said, I want everyone here to live in the moment. You can find YouTube videos galore of this song being performed at stadiums all around the world. He said, you can find that online any day of the week. He said, what you can't always do is live in the moment. So he asked everyone to put their phones away for the remainder of this song. They were going to start it again. He said, let's not post this on social media. Let's not be looking at a tiny screen. Let's be looking all around us. And he said, and when the moment comes, and, of course, we all (laughs) knew we were all waiting for it. He said, when that moment comes, he said, I want you to just let loose. He said, I want you to jump. I want there to be a slight Richter scale event. I want this to be slightly seismic. He said, we were able to pull it off once in Germany. He said, I think we can do it again here. He said, even if you're an uptight person, just let it go. Put your phone away and enjoy this song. So dutifully, basically everyone did. I really wanted to film it, but I said, nope, that's fine. And it was actually kind of refreshing to have someone say, it doesn't have to be on your phone. Just live for a second. So they started the song over again. And it got to the big moment, the beat drop and the crescendo. And when that musical part of the song started pumping, the building shook it felt like an earthquake people were just jumping and singing and cheering and no one had their phones out and it was visually stunning it was a sensory overload in every way and it almost felt like you were elsewhere it was an not out-of-body experience but close and it was very powerful and really cool So I wish I did have a recording of it just because it was that impactful. But I think part of what's special about it is it's just in my mind. And I can only use words to describe it. So I would recommend seeing Coldplay in concert. Again, it's not like I'm now a devoted fan because I went to the show. The music's good. It's catchy. There's a couple hits that I particularly enjoy. But just as a piece of fun and entertainment, the sound... The feel, the look, all of it, I've never experienced something quite like that. And the energy was terrific. So if you get the chance, go see them at some point. And hopefully they'll be touring uh, for a long time because they're pretty young guys still. I think they're in their 40s. And, yeah, that's my my story of a last-minute decision that ultimately I was questioning all the way up to the moment of the concert starting. So I'm like, I'm a few hundred dollars poorer now. I'm sitting by myself amid strangers. Is this going to be kind of silly? And then by the end, I said, nope, that was the right decision. Worth every penny. Very cool. Almost done. Christine, I know you had a lot of questions. We don't have a lot of time. Can you sneak one in?
1: I think you answered probably any question I had. My my one question was going to be, had you ever gone to a concert alone before? No. And yeah, I've never done that either. But I guess if you're traveling and you're, you're on your own. I mean, what a cool experience. I feel like I wouldn't have done that. And now you kind of inspired me.
0: Have I sold you on Coldplay? Would you go see them?
1: 1000%. Your videos alone just looked unbelievable. So yes, I would, I would really want to just for the experience.
0: Okay. Yeah, I, I recommend it. And they'll be back. I think they just played MetLife the Meadowlands recently, so you might have to wait for the next cycle around, but do it. And they're, they're always looking for new ways to make the concert experience apparently unrivaled. Uh, setting aside the music again, the music's fine. It's just the experience, and I'm glad I did it. I love the city of London. I love British people generally. It's just I, I feel like it's a second home for me, and seeing a British band in Wembley Stadium and, and put on the spectacle that they did, just cool. I had a few goosebumps in the stadium, and then just recounting the story, honestly. I got them again. So I think that's the sign of a pretty cool time. Back here tomorrow from the London Bureau of Fox News. For more of The Guy Benson Show, same time as always, 3 to 6 Eastern. So what is that, 8 to 11 here? I think that's right. The time change is still messing with me a little bit. But we'll be back here at our normally scheduled time on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Have a great night.